it's good to be with you again. Thank you for allowing me to come back. Uh, last week, is if you, if you remember, we were in Psalm 32 that you just heard read. We had looked at the first half of this, about half of it, and this morning we want to look at the second part. And so what I'll do is just review a bit of what we did last week to kind of get everybody thinking the same way, back on track uh, after seven days, and, and then we'll proceed forward. Um, if you remember, the backstory of this psalm are the events of 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and really the fallout goes on through 2 Samuel. And that, of course, are the passages in which David commits adultery, and maybe worse, even against Bathsheba. He um, has at least two attempts at cover-up before outright murdering uh, her husband and her, the, the faithful soldier Uriah. Um, this, of course, ruined relationships within his own family. But within months, the scandal had become a national and even international gossip, and there was guilt and shame and even the death of the child that came from the union. So much disaster, much to be uh, sad about, much to be upset about, and, and to, there was a lot of shame and guilt. And David spent a, about a year in which his thoughts were heavy with the sin and with the ramifications of that sin, and as things snowballed in the kingdom and in his family, it got worse. And that is the historical context from which at least two famous psalms were written as David reflected on those events, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 that we're looking at. And David reflects on this time and the sin and the cover-up that he went through at this time. And his, his struggle really with the Lord at those events. Now we've already seen in the first part of Psalm 32 that something else had happened as well since then. When David was writing chapter 32 of the Psalms, it, it, something must have happened other than the bad times because he comes at it in a positive way. This, this chapter is not full of sadness. It's actually full of uh, positive explanations and encouragements and explains how he got back his gladness. And David is not just happy in this psalm, but he's happy with God. And what happened uh, doesn't take away from the awful things that, that started this, but in the joy of Psalm 32, there's, a, there's new life because David has received forgiveness. And we're left with the, um, we're left with the impression that of all the things that happened, David so highly valued his relationship with God that the thing that burdened him the most was his loss of that relationship with God. And he, he thoroughly enjoyed God when things were going well. And when he was sinfully distant from God, he was deeply troubled to the point of physically suffering. And we've already seen in, seen in this psalm, when the relationship was renewed, therefore his happiness came back, his joy came back. Now, if you remember uh, in verses 1 and 2, this is the, the gratitude and joy that per, pervades the psalm. I think these are the, the verses that set the whole thing off. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts iniquity, does not, excuse me. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That last part is interesting there is no deceit in that person. That sin, that separation from God that was such a low point, was it, it was the recovery 
from this low point that made David happy. I mean, he was so low, and this recovery was so solid, that the joy is so great. And you can see David moving in that direction, both down then up again, as, as he enjoys God's forgiveness. Now he's clean, and that's why it feels good. A significant portion of this psalm is a reflection on David's slowness to repent. If Psalm 51 is a description of how much he hated the sin and and the damage it caused, Psalm 32 is about how slow did it take him to get to that point. And David describes the bad health that happened while he wouldn't repent. It says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away with the fever heat of summer. Selah. So after these horrible events, David was critical of himself in two ways, really. In Psalm 51, critical about the sorrow of the sin itself. But in Psalm 32, he was critical about how long it took him to come to his senses and return to God. Even to the point of physical illness and spiritual guilt is what actually drives him there. So as David eventually turns from the cover-up to confession and repentance, he finds that God has forgiven him after he confessed. Verse 5 says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not cover. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. And in verse 5, David uses the same words he used in verses 1 and 2. He acknowledged his sin. He did not hide his iniquity. And David confessed his transgressions so that he found that when he was active in confession, God was active in forgiveness. And this is the Christian paradox we mentioned last time. That as as we cover up and try to hide our own sin, try to make it all right in some way, God uncovers sin. And yet as we uncover sin in confession, God covers it in his forgiveness, in his grace. And so the joy of forgiveness, of of restoration with God, the experience of restoring uh, David is what is setting the tone for the second half of this, this chapter. Before I dive in, I want to take a minute, though, to kind of bridge the gap between where David was and where we tend to be. And... Uh, I, hopefully this helps in resonating with this psalm a little bit more. My, my pastor, sometimes when he describes Christianity, he describes it as, as an experiential religion. He does this uh, particularly when dis- defining it in a, away from other types of belief systems, that Christianity is an experiential religion. And what he means by that is that is the kind of engagement you find in biblical Christianity that is distinctive. For example, though Christianity stands on truthful propositions, it's not a philosophy that you give your mental assent to. And though it has unfathomable aspects to it, it's not some hierarchy of mysteries that that get revealed to you over time. And though Christianity engages the emotions, it's not a series of ecstatic experiences that we try to create or engage in. And though There is obedience in Christianity. It's not a compelled servitude against the will. And so what it is is an experiential relationship that we are constantly engaged in our worship, meaning we're always before God. 
always. And, and, and that is the experiential part of it. We're holistically engaged, meaning God informs every aspect of life. We don't carve out the spiritual parts for him. But, but all is his. And David understood this really, really well. He understood that God was personally engaged with him at all times. And it's true that David occupies sort of a special place in, in redemptive history. He is a kind of person in the Bible that we can't be, a figure that we can't... God's not using us in exactly the same way he's using David. So there are some differences. However, that doesn't explain why, why he sees his relationship with God in a very tangible way, and we tend to see God in a distant type of way. David is a warrior. Most of his life he spent in battle, either, either being chased by his enemies or carving out his nation among his enemies. And listen to how this warrior is, uh, explains his engagement with God in a, few psalms, uh, in, in a few stanzas from Psalm 18. This is Psalm 18. Uh, it says, For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made, a way blame, and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of the deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. So think about this. This is a warrior who believed that when he moves, God moves. When he attacks, God is with him. He saw the Lord placing his footsteps so he wouldn't stumble in battle. He saw the Lord that when he leaped, God gave him the strength to get up the wall. He saw that when he pulls back on the bowstring, it's God who pulls back with him. And when we read the psalm, even though it's written poetically, we see that David thought, that God was right there with him, engaging in everything that he was engaging in and empowering everything that he did. And, and every danger that David incurred was, was from the Father's will. And every close call that he was rescued from was God's deliverance. And David continually experienced God and noted his presence at all times. And therefore, we understand a little bit better that, that of all the consequences that came out of David's sin, out of 2 Samuel 11, the most significant was that he lost communication and relationship with God. And we see what he meant in Psalm 51 when he wrote, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And if we have a hard time identifying with the depth of loss that Psalm 51 and 32 are describing, and the height of gain that Psalm 32 is enjoying, it's probably because we don't enjoy the presence of the Lord in the way that David did. We might sympathize with his public embarrassment that David felt. We might similarly be concerned with the people he 
he hurt. And we would be terribly saddened, of course, with the death of a child, as David was. And we would feel a lot of the same shame that David felt. However, I think we struggle in identifying with the expression of loss of the closeness of God, as well as the happiness experienced when he feels God back with him. And we have an experiential religion here in which we are reading of another person's experience. And and I don't mean to say that we don't know what forgiveness means. Um, Every believer can can say with David in verses 1 and 2, my transgressions have been forgiven, my sins have been covered, our iniquities are no longer imputed or counted against us, and our spirit is clean. Anybody who's saved can say that. We might just attribute the differences between David and us as an individual kind of situation where David is a one-of-a-kind person in his place and time. We are who we are in our place and time. He has his experiences. We have our experiences. Both of us love God, and it just looks a lot different. His spiritual life is different than yours or mine. But that kind of individualism is, is wiped away with the second half of this passage. David did not think he was living out his own truth in any way. David thought that we ought to understand and identify and be able to go through what he went through and that we ought to learn from him. And so our experience with God would surpass his experience with God. He's teaching us to do this better because we are like him. And it's not radically independent from what he went through. And so he says in verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the truth, excuse me, surely, surely in the rush of great waters, they will not reach him. So this begins the second half of the passage, and it starts with the word therefore, which means obviously everything that he said before is going to be the foundation for where he goes next. And so what we have before is David's personal testimony of coming back to God and forgiveness that was delayed and troubled by his own cover-up and slow confession. And, And based on that testimony, therefore, let everyone who's godly pray to you at a time when you may be found. And so this is no longer a story about what happened to David. David's turning into a teacher, and he's saying, this is what you ought to do in a similar situation. And yet he does it in the form of a prayer. Look at who he's talking to. Do you see the phrase, let everyone pray to you? He must be talking to God. And and so he's giving us instruction, and at the same time, he's praying that God would make it so. And and so what is this instruction or prayer? What, What is he saying here? When we are separated from our sin, from God, we're separated by our sin from God, we would we should expeditiously go to God. That's his point. He wants us to be quick to confess, and and he's praying that God would encourage and facilitate our confession. To us, he says, be quicker to get to confession. Remember that one of the things that he regretted is staying in a mode of cover-up all the time. He spent way too long trying trying to manipulate things, trying to spin things, trying to get people and things in order. And his instruction is to be quick to go to God, drop the cover-up, and be quick to confess and go to God. And, and there might be some confusion 
about the sentence or the phrase, pray to God while he can still be found. David's describing God in relational standing with his people in this sentence. It's, it's the relationship with God. A more literal person would say, well, David, you can't really say that. God is everywhere at all times. God's not coming or going in some kind of spatial way. So you don't have to hurry up. God's not leaving kind of thing. Right. But that's true. God is everywhere at all times and then you can't escape him. He will not leave. But that's not what David's implying at all. Nor do God, does God abandon those are his. We know that he's committed himself to the saints. This is true again, but that's not what David is talking about either. By commanding us to, uh, to pray to God while he can be found, David's making a point from his experience. David has been taken by sin so far from the Lord in a relational sense, it seemed as if God were gone. And he's implying that we cannot spiritually find God because the sin and the cover-up keeps us from coming to him. And so the longer we're in this cover-up phase, the more apathetic we become about finding God at all. The more satisfied we are in that stage. And and the more comfortable we get with the cover-up that we've established. And this is why David is commanding us to seek by praying. Why does he have to command us to do this? Why does he have to say this? Well, it's because we won't easily come to the humility required to repent. We have to be told to do so. And sin, sin causes us to drop the practices by which we connect with God. Sin keeps me from prayer. Sin keeps me from Scripture. Sin keeps me from the enjoying Christian friends. Sin keeps me from the Lord's table. And when those avenues of God begin collapsing, it seems as if God can't be found. And I have to be told to pick them up again. And this encouragement has to happen to us before the cover-up goes too far. Now, we have to make a Christian distinctive here. Because this can be confusing if we aren't clear about what we're saying. We know that upon salvation, we have been joined to Christ by the Holy Spirit in such a way that what Christ has accomplished for us at the cross was completed. His salvation was accomplished. It cannot be improved upon by by our good works, nor can it be reduced by our sinfulness. Our activity cannot affect what Christ accomplished on the cross. His work was perfect. And to be more specific about what he accomplished, I want to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. So if you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And I want to just be specific at what we have in our salvation from Christ. And I want to read from verse 3 to 14. And I also want to call out our benefits as I see them when I read. So I'm in Ephesians 1. And I'm going to start with verse 3. This is what we have by rights of the accomplishment of Christ. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of of the world, 
that we would be holy and blameless before him. That's our election to holiness. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. There's our adoption to the praise and glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through through his blood. There's our redemption. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of, of his grace. There's our forgiveness by God, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of time. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. That's our that's revelation to us and illumination given to us in him. We also have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So we have a spiritual inheritance, one for us by Christ to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. That inheritance leads to hope. That's our hope in him. You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed with him, excuse me, in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the Holy Spirit has locked us in and ensured these things to us, locked us in Christ. We have security there who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of of his glory. There's, there's both the, the promise of things to come as well as the down payment that ensures those things to come. And those are all, that whole, that whole long paragraph, those are all things that we have from the Father in Christ to us by the work of the Spirit. The idea of being in Christ is mentioned or alluded to about ten times in there. It, it, it's it's those benefits given to us because we are in Christ. And historically, this, this is called our union with Christ. Because we've been joined to him, we get all the benefits of him. We are in him. And this term used to be used more frequently. And, and, and it, it, just, it says the seal, as the Holy Spirit seals us in Christ, all of those things we just described are ours. And what's true of the believer, they cannot be made better, they're perfect, nor can they be reduced. They are ours in Christ because he has accomplished it and the Spirit has applied it. We have them because we are in him. And so while salvation establishes us in the right relationship to God, what about what David is saying? Isn't he saying that we can experience a nearness to God as well as a distance from God? What is it that David is talking about if we have all these things secure? How is God distant from us? Well, I want to read some other passages, and I want you to note how our relationship with God varies both in his movement towards us as well as our disposition towards him. So listen to some of these passages I've picked. Lamentations 3, 56 through 57 says, You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my prayer for relief, from my cry for help. You drew near when I called you. You said, do not fear. Psalm 43, 2, For you are the, are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? 
Why do I go on mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Psalm 63, 1. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Isaiah 63, 9 and 10. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned him from Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy and fought against them. Psalm 80, verse 4. The Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? Psalm 89, 4 and 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? And before you say this is just an Old Testament phenomenon, listen to these. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 4.16 Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. James 4.8 Draw near and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. These, these passages are all glimpses of people in a covenant relationship with God unified with God, and yet experiencing different aspects in the relationship with him. Some far, some near, some closing in, some God distancing. There's movement in their relationship. And therefore, while God is our union and is firm and never changing, and our relationship is secured by the impeccable work of Christ, we are sealed in him by the Holy Spirit, our communion with God can vary. Our union is secure, but our communion can vary. And I think the verse that captures this, both ideas very, very uh, clearly, is familiar to you. It's Ephesians 4.30. And it starts off, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And that speaks to our communion, how we relate to God. We can grieve him, thereby negatively affecting the relationship. But the second part of the verse describes the Holy Spirit this way. He is the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So it's the Spirit's unchangeable work that He seals us in Christ's redemption. It is both we are sealed and cannot, cannot leave God, and yet we relate to Him differently at different times. And nobody can unseal what the Spirit is sealed. He doesn't unseal it. Satan can't break the seal. And we can't unseal what the Spirit is sealed. We are in Christ and our union is secure. And yet we find sometimes we are distant from God. Back in our passage, David wants our communion with God to be restored. But there are problems. Surely in a floodgate of great waters, they will not reach him. He pictures the context which prevents us from moving towards God. He vividly describes it as a flood of waters which intensifies the need to turn to God quickly. The situation is becoming overwhelmingly disastrous and delay is even compounding the disaster. So in this verse, both parts encourage us towards immediate action. Don't put it off. Turn to God in prayer. And if the simple situation and the cover, accompanying covering up 
is a powerful flood that keeps us from God, what we need is saving from the situation. We need somebody to pull us out of the cover-up. And encouragement is in chapter 7. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. Selah. This is David describing God as the one who preserves him, who delivers him, who, who is going to not only protect him for overwhelming trouble, but to bring him out of that into right relation. Now, David writes this at a time where the repercussions of what he did are still going on. The things that, the things that fell out of David's sin went on for years, decades, at least a decade. And he writes this not having fully recovered from all those replications, repercussions, but the idea that in that God is delivering him, God is sheltering him, and God has met him. And so he is right with God before all the consequences have been completed. Right? God has forgiven him. God has sheltered him. God is his place of refuge. Let me tell you, God will forgive you before other people will. And you can have a peace with God before there's peace around you. He can be a source of strength and a place of help as you move forward and as the problems are still snowballing. If, if, if we repent and move towards him. If not, if we don't seek his help, we won't experience him as a shelter or a good shepherd. And though we still have problems in our relationships, you can still say, you surround me with songs of deliverance. That in the midst of trouble, in the midst of the fallout, there is still deliverance. In verse 8, David reasserts himself as a reliable teacher in these matters. He says, I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go, and I will counsel you with my eye upon you. David knows that those who turn to God are going to need some help and encouragement, and he wants to be that. The longer we stay distant from the Lord, the more it takes to restore us. And David prayed that he would bring his people to himself in repentance, and now he says, let me help you do that. And at the same time, he's going to do that with care. There are a lot of people who want to straighten you out in life, all right? As you're growing up, it starts with your parents, probably. Everybody wants to see you on the straight and narrow. But David is going to be the teacher who does it with his eye upon you, meaning care. He's going to be instructing and teaching with care and doing best with his experiential wisdom what he can. The encouragement that we receive here is evidence of this. He's pastorally teaching us to repent quickly. And if that's the positive, verse 8 is the negative, right? He says, do not be as a horse or as a mule which have no, no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle, to hold them in check. Otherwise, it will not come near you. This is a pretty graphic picture. How do you get a horse or a mule to do what you want them to do? How do you get them to come near you and follow you? Well, sometimes you have to put a bridle on them, stick a bit in their mouth, and pull on the reins. And, and in David's situation, it, if you don't do that, the horse or the mule won't come. They'll just stay there. They have to be physically forced. 
Now, why won't they come without the equipment on them? Why won't they come without the bridle? Well, David says the problem is they have no understanding. They're hard-headed and have to be moved by an external force to do what they should do. They ought, they ought to be doing it by intrinsic motivation. But it takes something exterior to them, extrinsic, to move them along. Now think about it. We're, we're not really talking about animals here, are we? We're talking about people. We're talking about us. We're talking about people who should be moving toward God in repentance, and yet we're compelled in our cover-up to stay where we are. Stiff net, right? And, and that doesn't mean we're mindless. When it says we don't have understanding, it doesn't mean we're not thinking, we're not choosing, we're not evaluating. However, we don't have understanding. We don't understand the situation, we don't understand God, and we don't understand what we should do. And so we ought to be moving towards God, but what we find is that we're promoting our cover-up. We're spinning the situation. We're manipulating the people involved, right? Now, we, we know we ought to move towards God in confession and repentance. However, we don't. Sin multiplies the cover-up, and we go away from God. I remind you of a line of a hymn I'm sure you've heard. It says, Lord... I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. And that's a confession about personal drift from the Lord who saved me. Even those who know the salvation of God have appreciation for Jesus and have enjoyed the friendship of the Holy Spirit have a tendency to drift and run from God in situations. The problem is the principle of Christian growth says that we are coming closer to God or we are drifting from Him. There's no hovering in a good place. Okay, You're growing or you're not. And growth means we're producing more fruit or ultimately there's a pruning that has to take place. And if you're not attending to your soul by the means of prayer and Bibles and Christian fellowship and Lord's table, you're probably drifting from God. And in the context of this psalm, it may take a bit and a bridle to bring you back. Now, what does that mean in David's situation? It was the spiritual guilt, the shame, and physical illness. It's things outside and extrinsic that bring him to God. That's the negative in verse 9. So we had the positive in verse 8, the encouragement of a good pastor in David, and the negative in verse 9, the threat of having to be pulled back to God. But check out verse 10. David starts concluding his thoughts by contrasting two options. It says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Now, this almost sounds like it came from the book of Proverbs, actually. But the first option is to live as a person who sins and continues to drift from God, knowing that sin leads to sorrow. We know that. Proverbs says sin is enjoyable for the moment, but the life of a sinner is hard, right? And one of the consequences of sin is that you just have to live like a sinner. I mean, the life itself is part of the consequence, right? And in David's experience, 
It is that sin that separates us from God. It also separates us from other people, and it separates us from our own well-being. And the wicked have many sorrows. Yet, as Hebrews 6, 9 says, there's another way. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So the other choice is to trust God the second part of our passage, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness will surround him. Within the context of the psalm, it's trusting God through telling him our sin. What does it mean in this situation to trust God? Well, it means to come clean. It means to confess. It means to agree with God that what you've done is in fact terrible and you want to change from that. And it's trusting that he, upon our our confession, well, reestablish the relationship that we broke. That's the promise, that when a person trusts the Lord in these situations, God will surround that person with his loving kindness, his grace, his mercy. And this is a strong encouragement to uncover ourselves, to actually exercise the humility that it takes to admit who we are. Our guilt and our shame will be met with loving kindness. Those being the paths, the only two paths, then the encouragement to choose is there in verse 11. It says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. This is the result that encourages it. Is that where you want to be? Do you want to be glad in the Lord? Do you want to be rejoicing? Do you want to shout for joy? That is the result that confession leads to the reception of forgiveness, and the changing of our disposition. Ultimate happiness and restoration with God himself. That was designed from Genesis 1 on, that we were to commune with God, the eternal Lord, in a face-to-face way, in a personal way. When sin distances us from God, confession and forgiveness lead us to the gladness of God. And it leads us to rejoice in him. When we are upright, we are righteous. In relationship, we are right standing. We have both union and communion with God at that point. In fact, our communion with God is based on our union with God. This is what he does for his children. Right? It's both a description of David in Psalm 32, as well as his prayer for us, for anyone who would listen to this psalm. Now, I do want to take one more crack at trying to shorten the distance between us and David. For one might think that this kind of joy, this kind of happiness in verse 11 is only possible for someone who's been forgiven the kind of sin David has committed. I mean, perhaps we can't feel the depth of joy unless we're forgiven from the kind of thing David has done adultery, murder, cover-up, all that's probably beyond you. And perhaps that's why David finds so much joy in the forgiveness from those kinds of sin. Our sins tend to be less detrimental, less heinous, less dirty, and therefore the psalm might not quite be as applicable. Well, obviously David would disagree with you on that. Because... (laughs) of what he says in verses 6 through 11. 
He's telling other people to learn from him. He's telling other people to be encouraged by what he's found. And therefore, he's talking to us. And let me just make a couple of comments about this. First, the sin you find in 2 Samuel 11 and forward is not where David's drifting from God began. It's where it ended up, right? J.C. Riles is right when he says people fall in private long before they fall in public. And, and all of sin indicates a dissatisfaction of desires and attitudes before it flares up into adultery and murder. I assume you've experienced some dissatisfactions with God, evil desires, sinful attitudes, probably, right? Am I right in that? Maybe I'm the only one with that. Okay. But I think we've committed the same sin in seed form, in attitude, and thought. In fact, I don't think there's any sin I know of that hasn't passed through my mind as a possibility. These sins will separate us from God, and these require repentance, and these will be met with forgiveness as well. Secondly, we, all of us, you, me, David, we all sin against the same God, and we rebel against the same authority, and we trample the same grace and goodness. And by this, what I mean is the kind of sin is not as important as the one whom we've sinned against. Even if your sins are the smallest, you have to confess that you did them in rebellion against the most holy God, the one who's done nothing but show kindness and mercy. At least that's what we sang earlier. The kinds of our sins are not the biggest problem. Our biggest problem is the one whom we've sinned against. Let me give you a situation. If, if I were to just come down and slap you, I would feel bad and probably be in some trouble. Okay? And you might even take me to court. And if in court, I walked up and slapped the judge just as hard as I slapped you, they would quickly forget that I slapped you. And my problem would now be that I have slapped the judge. And if I slapped our president just as hard, they would put me under the jail. The difference is not in the act. It's against the majesty of the one who it happened to. Right? Now, how much more when we consider that every sin is against an all-good, almighty, eternally majestic God? It's not the act. It's the one we sin against. And thirdly, if we think that our sins are inconsequential in light of David's, we need to remember the complete work of Christ. If you would have committed all the sins of David, Christ would have to die for you to be forgiven. And if you only committed the very few and mild sins that you have done, Christ would still have to die for you, for you to be forgiven. And if you only committed one sin in your entire life, only the complete substitutionary death of Christ 
could purchase forgiveness on your behalf. And if we underestimate the awfulness of sin, we're going to underestimate the death of Christ. Moreover, we will not understand or experience the love of God as David did. It's not that David has created such a big sinful portfolio that we can't register with that. The problem is we've forgotten what sin is in relation to God. I don't know your situation. I don't know how much or what kind of sinning you've done. Really, you all look like fine people to me. The only way I know you're a sinner is because the Bible told me so. I haven't caught any of you doing anything, right? I don't know how long and deep your cover-up is either. I don't know how long you've been trying to spend things. Yet I want to echo David one more time. Run to the God who will forgive you in full confession. Uncover yourself. Don't require a bit or a a bridle. Uncover your sins so that he will cover them for you. And what you will find is forgiveness. And then you will be glad in the Lord and rejoice. You righteous ones and shout for joy. You who are upright in heart. And Jesus will make you happy. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for David's words. He hates the sin, but here he hates the cover-up. And we've used situational morality, comparison to others, our best thoughts and intentions versus our activities, anything we can do to minimize what we've done, to explain it to others, and try to get it past you. Father, we've forgotten who we've sinned against. We've forgotten your holiness. We've forgotten your majesty. We've forgotten your goodness. We've forgotten your grace. Please help us to run to you quicker in humility and repentance than we've ever done before. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.